Welcome to What's Next, the podcast that delves into the exhilarating world of nonlinear careers and the art of successful pivots. Join your host, Tamira Lechner, as she explores the diverse pathways of entrepreneurial spirits who thrive while working and playing across multiple disciplines. Whether you're firmly established in your career, contemplating a change, or simply seeking inspiration, these conversations with fascinating people will ignite your curiosity and inform your own journey. Tune in to discover how mindset and action plus your own secret sauce can lead to extraordinary personal and professional growth, no matter where life takes you. Welcome to What's Next, a podcast that delves into the exhilarating world of nonlinear careers and the art of successful pivots. I'm Tamara Lechner, your host, and I am here for my final episode with my friend, Eric Fraser. Welcome back, Eric. Thanks, Tamara. Hello, everyone. Our audience has been witnessing your pivot. So in a one-liner, a one-line summary, if someone has never listened to us before, what kind of career pivot have you been making, Eric? I made a pivot from um, culture consulting into AI. And before I was doing culture consulting, I was in technology. I'm a software developer by trade. So I was in what I would call an adjacent field to AI. So in a way, I was going a little bit you know, closer to my roots. Um, but I didn't just jump blindly. So I started getting very interested in AI in about, well, I was, I, I guess it goes back to two years ago, um, at around, you know, January, March of 2023, I started thinking about the possibility of maybe I should work in that field. In around August of 2023, I started studying the field in a really serious way in preparation for transitioning to it. And then in November of 2023, I made the transition as a student of the field, not as an expert, not as someone putting my hand up saying, I know everything, you know, I'm an expert now. No, I was basically going to a, um, a person who I could serve an apprenticeship with. Thank you for that summary. And so the last seven episodes have followed that process that you've been going through. And I think as we end our chapter of weekly conversations about this, one of the things that you and I have discussed very specifically about this type of pivot is the uncertainty that accompanies it, even though it's a stable job, it's a stable thing, AI is happening. Yeah. There's a lot of uncertainty. I like to call it predictable, unpredictableness, predictably yeah. unpredictable. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what what it's like pivoting to something that's uncertain and what are the strengths and tools that you draw on to make that work for you. Yeah, I think um, one boring but basic thing is a, a, just a level of of ability to take an economic risk. So when things are as uncertain as they are, when like whenever you start a new business, I mean, there's going to be some uncertainty about that, even if there's high demand for what you're making. There's still uncertainty um, because it's a new business. So all new businesses have some uncertainty. And then with AI, because the whole marketplace changes, you know, from one month to the next, that also just creates a bunch of contextual uncertainty for every business in the market, including the big ones like Microsoft and Google and OpenAI. Those companies have uncertainty. So we definitely have uncertainty. Um, 
So just having a little bit of a financial cushion so that you don't have to panic every time that something you try doesn't completely succeed 100%. You know, you don't want to go to bed losing sleep over that. You want to go to bed thinking, oh, well, you know, live and learn. I guess I didn't get that one right, but now I learned something and I'll improve next time. Um, You know, if you don't have that financial cushion, I imagine it would be incredibly stressful and it might actually start impacting your health and I don't think it would be worth it. the other, the less boring thing is, you know, attitudinally, I think you just have to be really accepting of the fact that your entire world might change, your entire context might change. And here's where a lot of books about entrepreneurial spirit and, and starting businesses talk about this, the comfort with changing your plan and not falling in love so much with any one plan that you can't pivot away from it. I think that's really important as well. Yeah, I've heard that referred to as your AQ, your adaptability quotient. Yeah. And yeah. kind of like your emotional intelligence, your EQ, uh, it's not set. It's something that you practice and you learn. And And I think that you are absolutely right that if you are someone pivoting to be an entrepreneur in the AI space, that's a muscle you want to spend some time flexing. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder for audience members, because I've heard from some younger audience members, so people who are just starting out their career, maybe we're talking about seniors uh, of an undergrad who are thinking, I want to go into AI. And if they're hearing us say, this is volatile and uncertain, that might not be the case. AI entrepreneurship is very different than working inside the field. Is that correct? I think so. I think it's a fantastic time for, you know, if you're just coming out of your, um, you know, academic career and you're going into the workforce or maybe you're, you know, two years into the workforce, you're not loving what you're doing, you're considering a change. I think it's an excellent time to get into AI. Just be ready for the the landscape to change, just like it did in the late 90s when the internet started to become you know, um, instead of just something that nerds played with, it became a major economic force. And every month, something would change about the standards that uh, businesses and software companies used when making things to run on the internet or using things on the internet. So um, that didn't mean that it was a horrible place for new graduates to work in. It was a brilliant place for new graduates to be working in. I was... 26 when I came over to California to work at an internet startup in the 90s, um, the base standards were just being laid. Standards were being changed. um, Protocols were being changed every month, just like they are now in AI. And it was awesome. It was so fun. Um, I really felt like I was watching the creation of a foundation. So if you come into AI now, you're going to see the same thing. You're going to be watching the creation of a foundation. I really like how you put that. And I think what it brings to mind for me is as someone is pivoting, one of the great questions to ask yourself is how much AQ do I have right now? Uh, If you look at the other things that are happening in your life. If you're a parent to young humans, you may need to have more stability than you could Mm. have in the entrepreneurial side, but doesn't mean you can't 
be excited about that field and learning about it and integrating that in to whatever it is that you're already doing as yeah. you move. So I always think of it as look across all of the facets of your life, your relationships, your finance, what you're doing spiritually, what you're doing to learn and grow yourself. And not all of those things can be uncertain at the same time. So if you've got a lot of uncertainty yeah. in other places, you may want stable in your work. But if you've got a lot of stability in other places, it's a great time to consider something less stable or more uncertain for a yeah. while. I think that's a really good point. I think um, maybe the broader point there is know yourself as well. Know what your personal, um, you know, limits or preferences are for how much instability are you okay with and where are you okay with that instability? Um, and don't uh, don't go into it with rose-colored glasses thinking, oh, this is going to be easy and there's just so much money to be made. I'll just hang my shingle and start making a bunch of money. Um you know, it's, it's pretty dynamic. It's, it's pretty unpredictable. I want to shift gears a little bit because your work is from home. So you aren't hmm. currently going into an office. And I think I've heard so many rumblings about the back to work versus work hmm. from home theory. Where do you sit on that? I think that, um, well, first of all, I think that different people prefer different setups. I've worked from home primarily since way before the pandemic. So uh, just being in technology, I've, I've had the choice to work from home since the early 2000s, basically. Um, and so it, it wasn't new to me. It wasn't something that the, the, the pandemic created. It was just something that I was doing already anyway, and then suddenly everyone else is doing it. Um, but I do think that it's healthy to have real in-person, you know, sharing the same space kind of interaction with people. And so I've always had the good fortune to work at places where I could also have that. So whether it's going to an office, which it was in some cases, or whether it's going to meetings with people where we all fly to the same place and we meet in the same place. That's always been available to me right now. Um, what I do is I actually use um, a service called radius, which is kind of like Airbnb except for workspaces, not, you know, uh, overnight vacationing. And um, sometimes what they do is they have these events where they'll focus on an issue and they'll bring people from different companies to a space to discuss that issue and I found those really energizing and helpful. I mean, I found them concretely helpful in the running of our business. And I think it's mostly helpful for most people to have some time sharing space and talking to people. I couldn't agree more. I think all of the stats show that the thing that contributes most to our well-being is our sense of social connection and people, for the most part, do better connecting first is in person face to face second is yeah. over video like this third yeah. is being able to hear each other without seeing each other so right. there's just this order of operations and it doesn't mean that it has to be all one right but what you were describing that balance of i can work from home i get my stuff done but having a place to go where i meet and feel inspired by others really ensuring that you figure out yeah. how to make that happen in your life if you are a remote first worker i think is 
exceptionally important. And I know for younger generations, yeah, even more important because a lot of their social world is through their network of, of colleagues. So right. th- those opportunities are important. And I think if people are listening and planning a pivot, having real clarity around, do you want to be in a physical space or are you okay as a remote worker or where, where would you draw the, the boundaries for your own mental health as well as your yeah. own productivity? Because some of us just do better yeah. uh, when we're alone and others do better when they're surrounded by a team and, and knowing yourself, as you said, it's about knowing yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That's really going to help. Yeah. Not all offices are the same either. I mean, even at one company. So I worked at a company, a software company that was, um, that had, it's a sales office in San Jose and an engineering office in Dublin, Ireland. And I worked in both of those offices and they were incredibly different experiences. So, you know, even in one company, you go to two different offices, you could have a really different experience. Um, so this idea of, you know, going to the office means this and staying at home means that, that's really, really oversimplified. That is very true. And I think it, this reminds me almost of online dating. And, and it's the same for applying for jobs, that what looks good on paper, you might not have any chemistry with. And yeah. and so I guess what that leads me to kind of remind myself is when people think, oh, that's not for me, maybe open your mind a little bit more. It could be when it's not on paper. Yeah. <laughs> we don't always translate well to our, our dating profile versus us in person. And the same is true for for role descriptions. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the engineering office at this company that was in Dublin, Ireland, I was at this stage in my career where I didn't expect to enjoy going into offices anymore because I was mostly working from home. Um, and I would go into the San Jose office because I kind of felt obligated to. And then when I worked over in Dublin, I loved going into the office. It was really surprising to me, but I really loved going into that office. So I, it was something about the vibe of the office. It was very, it was like a, you know, a monastery in a way, like there was all these monks working at their keyboards quietly and occasionally they'd go over and whisper to each other and collaborate. And I, I don't know, there was something about that that I really, really liked. You're reminding me of a very cool office that I had the opportunity to visit um, in Kauai. It was the office of Hindu monks who produce one of the biggest magazines for the Hindu population in the world. And they had their office was something out of James Bond. It was behind a waterfall in the middle of Hawaii. And you would open this curtain and there is a waterfall. There were no visible doors anywhere. Everything was hidden inside greenery. And just I'm thinking back to just being in that space, that yeah. there's something about the energy of being in a place like that with people and again, it's not it's not because of the social. We're not sitting around socializing. We're all doing our very separate work, but right. in this place of energy. So yeah, yeah, yeah. that that energy matters. Do yeah. you have tips for bringing that type of energy into remote work? Because yes, the the drips of social connection are great, but sometimes you need some from home. Have you got any tips on that? Yeah, I do. First of all, I mean, it's it's sort of like constructing a diet. So most people who are health conscious, they pay attention to what they eat. 
and how much of it they eat. Um, and so I would think of the different types of interaction you have with people, like different types of food in your diet. And I would deliberately try to construct a balanced diet that works for you. So just like your diet should work for your body and your lifestyle, your work interaction diet should work for your psyche and your personality. Um, so for me, what that means is a certain style of, you know, very analytical, heavy interaction just to get stuff done, but then a more free form social interaction just to keep those connections and feelings of, um, of camaraderie, which are really important to the culture of a team. Um, I also set aside time to talk to people in person um, that are not people I work with necessarily right now, but are relevant to me somehow, uh, you know, just in a broader professional sense. And that's both concretely helpful from a networking point of view, but it's also energizing and it just fits my personality. I like to talk to interesting people about interesting things. They don't need to be AI people. They, you know, I talked to someone yesterday who uh, is from the steel industry um, and we were talking about just a range of, you know, topics about business. And I think that that's just interesting and it's just part of my personal interaction diet i do something quite similar that i pair well-being practices with days of the week and so tuesday for me is usually about social connection mm. i try to have a virtual cup of coffee with somebody that i've never met before whose energy is just intriguing to me uh, so sometimes those can be in person but more often than not these are online meetings that they're the type of networking where I'm not going into it with any clear wants yeah, or asks. Yeah. I just am really interested to meet these people because their energy stands out to me somehow. I love that. I love that. I think that's key too, where you, you should have some interactions where you don't have some specific agenda, like a three point plan of like out of this meeting, I'm going to get this, this, and this just, you know, meet the person and let it develop naturally. Um, I think that's a good, part of a person's interaction diet I, lo I love the interaction diet that's we're gonna have to write a recipe for this Erica I think that's <laughs> two cups of people I know one cup of people that I, I disagree with <laughs> right yeah yeah that's important too you know talking to some people that have really different perspectives on the world to you yeah I especially around some of the more divisive topics, whether that's politics or, or the gender debate. Mm. I am very interested in learning what I don't understand from people who on the surface I would feel are nothing like me. And going into those conversations, wondering, okay, what do we have in common? What, what are the threads that we can pull together? helps me to keep yeah. a very open mind and and try to learn uh, because I do believe we're all more alike than different when it comes right down to it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's also good for someone to just keep their own um role in a broader perspective as well. Like one of our friends, my, my wife and I have a friend who's an ex-cop and you know, his 
notion of workplace risk is really different or workplace stress, mm. you know. So we might think, oh, wow, you know, I had such a stressful day today. You know, as a cop, when you have a stressful day, it usually involves like lethal risk, like you may die. That's stress for them. Yeah, it's it's good to check what we get used to as our own norms around that because yeah. that is so right. I have a close friend who works as a nurse and the population that she nurses are the unhoused and highly addicted. And her level of stress is the, the same as, as your police officer friend. It's yeah. about personal safety that often yeah. in her day, she is in situations where there are people who are out of their skulls and yeah. surrounded by needles and and that is a is such a different type of stress than right. you and I behind our screen right. and might not get a client and that feels yeah. stressful. Exactly. It, it really yeah. does remind you to ground yourself in some reality, doesn't it? For sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's it's interesting. You're making me um, think to the 360 feedback process because often when I do 360s or unpack 360s with teams that I'm working with, you'll see people that do a great job of looking up, but maybe aren't so good at looking down. And I'm thinking there's also the adjacent and just the different that we get so comfortable in the type of work we do with the type of language we use in the type of setting that we are in, that it does take a little shakeup to remind mm. us not, not everybody's day is in an office. Not everybody's stress is about did I deliver my speech well yeah yeah exactly or did something that I tried to code work the way I wanted <laughs> yeah to? I mean yeah yeah really different stakes so given that I I want to touch a bit on mistake tolerance mistake tolerance is something that I've been hearing more and more about in the workplace setting mm. and I think we hear a lot about mistakes in the AI space because of hallucinations or yeah. because of the mistakes that humans are using in assuming the outcomes are accurate. Um, yeah. And so I wonder how you deal with that balance of mistake tolerance that, okay, I need to have high standards for myself and for my work, but this is also a time of, of testing and breaking things. And you and I spoke before. Yeah about perhaps this isn't the go fast and break it, but how do you balance the right kind of mistakes to make as you pivot? And how do you know? I think the most important thing when you're thinking about your own mistake tolerance and how to set it up in your business is you don't expose your clients to risk without telling them and rewarding them. So in the software world, it looks like this. You might release a beta of a product and you tell everyone, hey, this is a beta release. You can use it for free. It might break. What we're letting you do is, you know, you use it for free. Um, so we're not going to charge you any money. But in return, we're going to collect a bunch of data about what happens in the field. We're going to use it. So you're 100% upfront with people about what is this product? Is it a, you know, a fully formed product? No, it's a beta release. It could break, right? So everyone knows what do they get out of it? Well, they get to use a new product for free. Maybe they want to. If they don't want to, they don't have to. That's really different to, you know, pointing to say you, you release a car and you say this car can drive itself and then really it can't. 
right? So it smashes into a truck and you die. And then you, you can't say as a car company, oh, well, you know, I mean, what do you expect? It was just a beta release of a car. Um, that's really dishonest and kind of evil. Um, so mistake tolerance has to be set up in a way that if you're taking a risk, most of it should be your risk. So if something goes wrong, it goes wrong to you and your business, and you have to bear the cost of that. If you're going to put any risk on your clients, you've got to tell them upfront super clearly and give them some sort of reward for taking the risk, like if it's free use of a product or if it's something else, but make sure that they're completely aware of what's happening. That transparency, uh, I think, comes with entrepreneurial courage at times. What I witness, especially in newer entrepreneurs, is this need to pretend that their product or service does all of the things and your privilege is to try it. And if it breaks, their their hands are off. And so I think what, what I'm hearing you say is having the bravery to pre-set the relationship, the working relationship, collaboration, partnership, beta, yeah. By saying, this is what we think we've made. Yeah. This is what we hope it does. And yeah. these are the things we don't know yet or the things yeah. that we're still working on. Usually, the hard conversation you have to have about that is with investors. If you're your mm. own investor, I guess you don't have to because that's just your own money. So you, you hopefully know what you're doing. Um, but if you take someone else's money as an investment, you got to be honest with them and say, right, here's what I'm going to do with this money. Now, I'm not going to pretend that everything I do in the next six months is going to work perfectly. I may make some mistakes. In fact, probably here's the type of mistake that will happen in the next six months, and it will have the following financial effect. And the investor should know that too, so that when that does happen, they don't come screaming at you saying, what happened? You know, you didn't tell me it could have gone wrong. You know, most investors are pretty realistic. They understand that in new technology, there's going to be experimentation and testing and not everything's going to work the first time. Um, but you should, as the business, be really honest with them about that and, and try to explain exactly where the risks are and what the likely effect would be. That's great advice. It's connected to another idea for me that I think you'd have a an opinion that I know I'm interested in hearing and I'm sure our audience will as well around an entrepreneurial endeavor and are you bootstrapping and owning everything yourself or are you taking money and growing to have a board and investors and and where do you sit on that for you personally which which would you prefer to to go it alone or I, to have money oh i'd much prefer to bootstrap um and uh i mean you can also do commercial loans right because a bank yeah. will usually not interrogate you as deeply as an investor will um i mean you're going to need to show them some cash flow projections that show them getting their money back but they're not typically going to interrogate you about the risks of your business plan as deeply as an investor will um so you've got investment you've got lending and you've got your own money uh, i would way prefer to bootstrap with your own money start small be cash flow positive, reinvest the cash into the business and just grow at a slower speed, but not take investment money. Why am I so against investment money? Well, I'm not 
against it. It's just that I noticed that the culture of investing right now is very much about, you know, I'm going to give you $1 and you better give me $100 back real fast. And if you don't, you are a failure and an idiot. And I don't like that culture. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I, I think there's a time to take investment money. Um, but my preference is to wait until it's just the last option. Yeah, I, I share that opinion. And I think probably it's because of the type of business that you and I are involved in. I'm sure there's certain businesses that you just couldn't build what you need to build if you didn't have money from outside. If, if you're looking at space travel or, some sure, large right. infrastructure thing, you're going to need money from somewhere. But I yeah. decided really after going through a couple of rounds of different founders institutes and accelerators and, and learning about the whole process uh, that I, I couldn't see why I needed to build something that big for, for my type of, of business and how much taking on all those layers of we need a hundred back for our one would number one, stress your decision-making capacity Yeah, because you had to make decisions that were all about the dollar, not necessarily about right. the, the human in the equation, which is really important to me. Yeah, And then I think there's some businesses that just don't scale that way. So right. you right. now put yourself in a position where, instead of doing the slow and steady burn and figuring out the product, you've kind of got one shot and you're done, uh, which is too bad. Yeah. I think that the current culture of investing, and by the way, my, my experience of this culture is specifically venture capital and private equity. So I know that there's, you know, family office type investing. I I don't have experience of that. So I, I know the behavior of VCs and PE firms and they tend to bring a need to create results in the short term, um, which doesn't fit every business. You know, some businesses you can create short-term results in in a kind of an explosive, you know, uh, sort of generation of value overnight, but other businesses you can't. So, Well, and I agree entirely, and I think as you and I spoke of before we started recording, that AI does have the potential to do that and it has the potential to stop doing that very quickly because it is so volatile and and uncertain right now that you could have a great idea that was 10xing or 100xing for a few months and then goes down to nothing and if you've got someone who has put capital into your company and you now have to answer to the I've gone from 1x to 10x to 100x to 0x. That's problematic. Yeah, I mean, look at what happened to Yahoo. Like, there was a time when Yahoo was the best way to search the internet yeah. before Google, and so the value of that company was set as if Google was never going to exist. And then suddenly Google came along and completely changed the mathematics of internet search. And Google was just clearly a better way. So suddenly very few people were using Yahoo to search the internet um, and the, the value of that company created. And that could happen to 
any AI company, actually. Like I was writing something today, um, which I really believe, I think there's a 16-year-old math student out there today, not necessarily in America either. They could be in Brazil or Nairobi or wherever they are, but they're, they're currently studying the math of large language models and they're looking at it going, that is nuts. There's got to be a better way to do it than that. And they will, you know, when they're 24, they'll be on some research team that comes out with their equivalent of the 2017 paper that Google DeepMind created that created LLMs of today. That paper created today's LLMs. You know, a few years from now, we're going to look at this architecture and think, wow, that's really kind of old and, you know, thank goodness we don't do it like that anymore. That costs way too much electricity. Yes, and I hope if that 16-year-old is is listening that they hold on to that idea and, and find the people who believe in them, find the others who are creators. Because I think when we're talking about this non-linear path, yeah. if we invent a pathway and then we all walk it, it becomes really hard to see the new way. Yeah. And I'm someone who I know, I know about myself that I, I love the new way. I am all over the, okay, throw out the iPhone. I see the humane technology and I'm, I'm done with the iPhone. I'm going to now have the wearable and I'm ready to go. And then somebody else is going to invent something else. And okay, I'm going to throw that out. But I'm aware that most people are less um, change. I, I guess, I mean, I'm change embracing. I'm, I'm asking for change. And so for those people out there who are having those ideas, I think the one message I want to double click on that you're saying is have the idea, find the others who will support you and, and keep working on it because we need more thinkers that are yeah. thinking outside the, okay, you can be a copycat. There's no problem with being a copycat, but isn't it really cool if you look at a math equation and go, I can solve that an entirely different way. Yeah, yeah. And you can build on the work of others. I mean, when Einstein came up with his theory of relativity, he was building on Newtonian physics principles. And, you know, he ended up changing them, but he started off with a pretty good starting point of, you know, laws of motion and, you know, gravity. And so there's nothing wrong with doing that either. You don't have to throw everything out. You can take what's currently there with the way that we do LLMs or large language models, and you can look at it and say, okay, that's always going to cost a ton of electricity and energy to calculate, even for simple things. There's got to be a better way. And, you know, this is a pretty old style of math, actually. I mean, the, the paper that Google wrote was in 2017, but the, the root of the math goes all the way back to the 1950s. Some kid out there right now is looking at that math going, no, I, there's just got to be a better way. And over the next eight years, if they go into math really deep, they're going to team up with other mathematicians and they'll get it. You know, by the time they're 24, they'll have worked it out. They'll say, okay, got it. Here's how to do it. And it costs one tenth of the electricity energy. All right. Well, before we wrap up this episode, because we've been talking about big ideas, have you seen Anything new that's been intriguing you in the AI space? Yeah, so something happened today, basically, that is a pretty big shift, which is, um, well, I don't know if it happened today. We, we found out about it today, which is that Microsoft is setting up its own team to make basically what are now being called small language models. I think they're more like 
medium language models, but basically smaller, lighter versions of ChatGPT. The reason this is news is because Microsoft owned just under half of OpenAI. And up until now, they've used ChatGPT as the engine to drive Microsoft Copilot. So if you look under the hood of Microsoft's AI, what do you find? You find OpenAI product, ChatGPT. Now it looks like what they're going to do is rip that engine out and put their own engine in. This is a massive economic decision. Um, I would be a little nervous if I was ChatGPT, honestly. Um, this has big, big impacts for them. It doesn't kill them as a company or anything. It just means they need to redraw their game plan, like starting today. Microsoft, in the meantime, uh, you know, because of the amount of cash that they have, they can pretty much do, you know, within reason, anything they want. Um, I think probably what they'll try to do is, like, they'll try to aim for a middle ground between the, the huge, huge models like ChatGPT and Llama and then the really small, lightweight ones like Mixtral, and they'll try to build something in the middle, and they'll put a middle price tag. So it's kind of like we're in a world where you've only got Rolls Royces and Toyota Yaris's. And Microsoft are looking at the middle saying, why isn't there a Toyota Corolla? Wouldn't that be, or a Camry or something, wouldn't that be popular? Let's make one of those. I think that's what they're doing. I love that you went to a car illustration because when you were describing it, I was thinking of the last time I went to buy a car, we ended up buying a Kia and the dealer said to us, you know, this is the same as the Lexus. It's the same design. It's the same. And, and you're you're making this very understandable whether or not people understand the large language model the small language model the medium size you've put it in a way that's really understandable what i'm wondering is if i'm choosing one so for for your clients who are coming yeah. to you saying how do i choose yeah when everything is in flux like that what are the filters that you're putting in their decision matrix so that they can decide on something that's going to work at least for a while because things seem to be changing so quickly that I would have concern that my decision would be obsolete by the time the paperwork got done. Yeah, yeah. So I think that um, without knowing more about their specific business problems that they're trying to solve, if they just came at us with like, well, what's just your general advice here? I think the general advice today would look something like this. Pick a generalist, larger model like Llama 2 and build a confined use case on that. By confined, I mean don't try to solve like a massive world-changing business problem. Just take one concrete business problem that you have tried to solve using other tech and it just hasn't been solved. But you think that large language modeling might solve it. Okay, so take uh, either an open version, an open model like Llama 2 where you don't have any API fees or take ChatGPT or uh, Gemini where you will have API fees but contain your cost by just aiming it at a very specific problem. Now, let's say that three months from now, Microsoft comes out with their, you know, Toyota Camry style LM and they say, hey, look, it's way cheaper and it's easier and all that stuff. And you think, oh no, now I don't want to be on ChatGPT anymore. I want to be on the Microsoft thing. Well, you can be, right? Now you're gonna you yeah. may have to rewrite some API calls, but you you're not now trying to 
move something big and heavy. You're just trying to move, you know, confined business use cases that you've built for, and it should be a much more simple move. But I would build with that in mind. I would build with the fact in mind or the, the possibility in mind that whatever foundation model you're using today may not be the one you want to be in in six months. That's brilliant advice, Eric. I think we're just about at the end of this episode. So I want to throw out to you, is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that you want to talk about or that you would think our audience would like to hear at this point? I think um, the I think it's a really good time to do pivots. Um, if you have just enough economic security that you can do it without going to bed, you know, in a cold sweat. I think it's a good time to do pivots because so many things are changing. You've got, you know, the whole nature of work really changing. And so it it's interesting that there's possibilities that open up every week um, that are interesting for entrepreneurs. So if you think, hey, I can do this without going to bed in a cold sweat, this might be your time to look at a pivot. Thank you for that. And I've been filtering it through. Is this a pivot by choice or a pivot by chance? Some some people are not wanting to pivot and not having a choice right now. And And I think for either listener, what you're saying is reassuring because this time is pivot friendly because yeah. there's so much change in the in the landscape of all business right that no matter what your history has been there's going to be a shakeup and exactly. with that yeah. comes a lot of opportunity yeah and it's not just about ai either there's no. lots of new opportunities opening up because for example you know american businesses don't want to source as much of their supply chain from china for example or um, people aren't going into offices as much anymore. There's really big changes happening in the world that create new opportunities everywhere. There are, and even our our consumers are driving it. I know I watch my children who are far more intentional about their consumption than I ever thought to be at their age. And, and that comes with a lot of opportunity yeah. for clothing designers and furniture designers and people right. building houses. And so I think you've got the nail on the head. This is a time where not only in AI, but across work, across yeah. life, yeah. things are changing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you for letting us witness your slice of change. It has been an absolute pleasure. It's been a pleasure to share it. And thank you very much for having me on the show. Uh, you are so welcome. And to our audience, we are going to continue to be unfolding people's pivots rather than doing eight episodes in a row like we did with Eric. I'm going to do some single fast episodes that discuss this is where I've been, this is where I'm going, and this is what I'm doing. So please continue to join me. And until next time, whether your pivot is by choice or by chance, stay brave, stay curious, be open-minded, and remember that what's next is inevitable and it's all up to you. <laughs>